All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fuck, Nicks? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast. Welcome to it. How is everybody? How are things going at home? How are things going at work? What's going on with your parents? What is happening with your kids? Oh, my God, the options are infinite. How's your partner? How's, how's that, that guy who lives down the street? What about that guy that keeps walking by your house? Maybe you should ask him what's up. Who knows? Wandering around New York. That's what I've been doing. A lot of walking, a lot of uh, trying to find vegan food, eating. Things have changed since I've uh, been coming here over the years. It's odd uh, being a vegan person, but I'm not missing it. I literally stay across the street from Katz's and I think about it and nothing happens. So I, I guess that's a good sign. Let me let me do some business up front here. First of all, on the show today, Jesse David Fox is here. He's the senior editor at New York Magazine's Vulture site. And since like 2012, he's been covering comedy for Vulture. I've talked to him many times uh, for print interviews, and I've been on his podcast a couple of times. It's called Good One, a podcast about jokes. He wrote the new book, Comedy book, How Comedy Conquered Culture and the Magic That Makes It Work. I read the whole thing. I read the whole thing because it's about my business. It's like reading the Cliff Nesteroff book. Sometimes I'll read the whole book. I don't know why I say that like I need to be proud, but I've been reading a lot more lately, which is good. I don't think I ever, I think the problem with reading in me is when I sit down to read, like I have to actually think about people I know who read a lot and just think about them saying, all right. I'm going to read for a couple hours because for me to sit down and do anything for a couple hours, I got a million other things that need to be done that aren't even major small things, things that probably aren't urgent, uh, like cooking, eating, fixing the refrigerator. Uh, I, there's just, I don't a lot the time. And as I get older, I guess maybe it's just because it's enjoyable. I'm like, just shut up and sit down and get into it. Read the book, dummy. I don't know what the hell my brain's doing. I don't know what I think I'm doing. I don't think I'm wasting time, but I don't have a lot to show for myself. I have this, what I'm saying right now, to show for myself, but the other 24 hours and change, I don't know. Not always a lot. Comedy, sure. But what about that? Th those chunks of free time? I usually frame it around homework, like things I need to do. I, I don't know how much I do for enjoyment. Man, you know, this isn't your problem. So listen, Los Angeles people... I'm at Dynasty Typewriter on December 1st, 13th, and 28th, the Elysian Theater on December 6th, 15th, and 22nd, and Largo on December 12th and January 9th. Then I'm in San Diego at the Observatory North Park on Saturday, January 27th for two shows, San Francisco at the Castro Theater on Saturday, February 3rd. I will be hosting a screening of a beautiful print of McCabe and Mrs. Miller at the Roxy Theater on February 4th. You can go to uh, roxy.com. I'm just telling you that because, as many of you know, it's probably among my favorite movies in the top five, and I have been trying to understand it on a deeper and deeper level throughout my entire adult life. And my buddy Peter Conheim, who's a film archivist, has his own print, and he's been asking me to come to his house to watch it, which uh, seems weird, but it's probably fine. But now it just worked out. He lives in the Bay Area and he got the Roxy on board and we're going to show this beautiful print of that movie. And I'm going to say a few words, not like it's dead, but like it's alive, like it's alive. 
I'll be in Portland, Maine at the State Theater on Thursday, March 7th, Medford, Massachusetts, outside Boston at the Chevalier Theater on Friday, March 8th, Providence, Rhode Island at the Strand Theater, yeah, on Saturday, March 9th, Terrytown, New York at the Terrytown Music Hall on Sunday, March 10th, and Atlanta, Georgia. I'm at the Buckhead Theater on Friday, March 22nd. Go to WTFPod.com slash tour for tickets. And also, I'll be adding dates here and there as we move towards whatever I'm going to do with this hour. I know some people are like, why not this town? Why not here? Why didn't she come back here? Well, I'll add more dates after this run as we head towards the fall. And uh, I need to polish it up and, and get out to those other markets. So don't freak out like I'm never coming to your town again. Here's some other big news. Christmas is coming. And there are new Brian Jones cap mugs available to purchase starting today at noon Eastern. These are the handmade mugs you get if you're a guest on WTF. There are two versions available for the holidays, both based on the original art we used from the early days of WTF. Again, these are available today starting at noon Eastern at WTFmugs.co. WTFmugs.co. Oh, he's got a, his, oh, a dedicated website. I love this design. These are the original ones that made me very excited when Brian Jones was an early fan of the show and we came up with the idea to provide some high-end swag for the guests. And he made these, uh, these very specific mugs with the original cats on it. And this one, the new version of the original design-ish, has the new cats and the cat angels the original crew of three, the new crew of three and the old crew of three and my face. Uh, people love these mugs. I, I, I hear from, it's one of the only things that uh, some of the uh, um, celebrities I've talked to uh, reflect on even. It's like, I love that mug. What about the conversation? Don't remember it at all. The mug is great. I use it every day. Okay. But I've been walking around, been eating at some good, good places. I guess if you're in New York, there's uh, someone turned me on to this place down on, uh, where is it, like Mott Street somewhere, Luann's Wild Ginger. It's like a, it's like a, almost like a Thai vegan place that's just fucking amazing. I ate there twice. It's on Broom Street here in New York City. But I, where else did I go? We went to uh, Brendan and I. This is the weird thing about when you eat vegan is that... Um, you find a place, why not eat there several times? Spicy Moon was very good. Sashawan, uh, vegan place. Butcher's Daughter, very good. So I don't know. I, I'm still pretty excited about eating this way, and I'm not missing anything. I might miss the Russ and Daughters a little bit. But aside from that, I saw a few movies while I was here. I went to see um, The Holdovers, which was pretty good. I went to see, uh, oh man, we went to a friends and family screening of uh, the Color Purple musical because I'm going to talk to the director. That was spectacular, just crying like an idiot uh, when I watch musicals. Uh, I shouldn't be ashamed of that anymore. I've earned that, haven't I? And I also watched a screener of this movie Memory with Peter Sarsgaard and Jessica Chastain that was devastatingly beautiful. And I, I have not seen a film like that, you know, kind of ride this edge of complete uh, sadness and also uh, beauty and love. It was spectacular. And I've done some reading. That's what I'm doing. I'm wandering around New York, taking it in again. I walked by this hole in the ground that seemed familiar to me. I, I was on Second Avenue. There's this giant, it's not even a construction site. It's just 
what's left over after they took the building away, just hole in the ground. I realized, oh my God, that was at church. That was at second and second. It was one of the places I got sober. It was very important in my early sobriety, the second and second meeting. Now it's just a hole in the ground and I'm hoping that doesn't mean anything. Got to be careful with my brain not to, uh, to read into uh, events as being symbolic or representing something uh, that I don't quite understand. I got to reel in the mystical sometimes because, you know, that part of the brain can't trust it, cannot trust it. So anyway, let me talk a little bit about this conversation you're about to hear. Jesse David Fox is a guy that I've known for a long time. He's written about the podcast. He's written about me. I've talked to him many times uh, on different, uh, for print and for his podcast and other things, as I said before. But he's really trying to, de- this is, these, the, these couple of books that I've read recently, you, you know, Cliff's book, Outrageous, and also Jesse's book, the uh, comedy book, How Comedy Conquered Culture and, and the Magic That Makes It Work, are really kind of, they're in, engaging, entertaining texts that you know are documenting comedy as in a, not only in a critical way and in, in a cultural commentator type of way, but also in, in a historical way. These are in a lot of ways function as, as histories, uh, Jesse's book of modern comedy and, and Cliff's book uh, uh, about the arc of controversy in comedy. But I'm just bringing that up because I've read these two kind of back to back. But Jesse's book really deals with modern comedy, not going back that far, you know, sort of like dealing with some of my generation, but mostly the generation after me and also the transition that comedy made with social media platforms and, you know, with SNL, with sketch, he just kind of brings it all in and really kind of focuses in a fairly intellectual way about the impact and, uh, you know, unfolding of, of modern comedy in all these different, uh, areas. And what was interesting to me is like, I have definite opinions about the impact of, of a certain generation of comics after me that, you know, we're not, we're not contentious about it, but, but I, I, I was sort of came around to his point of view. And then his book goes all the way through, you know, two generations down from me, you know, there's the generation after me. And then there's another one in terms of these waves of comedy. Uh, and I'm completely out of the loop. So this is one of those conversations where I kind of realize, like, all right, dude, you're you're not really on the pulse. You do see these people around, but in terms of you know the active kind of ongoing momentum of new comedy talent is, is something I'm quite removed from, and and it's a weird thing to admit, and I've known it for a few years now that that like I don't know who the fuck's doing what anymore, and that's just by virtue of age and because my life is full and I have my world and I go do what I do, but I'm not I'm not in the race anymore. Uh, and I'm not seeing it necessarily as a competition, but there all there is turnover. There are new generations. There are new talents. Sometimes I'll see them on like I didn't know anything about you, you know the uh, the world of the new LGBTQ comics, the sketch comics where Bowen Yang comes from. Uh, he talks about Kate Berlant, who I've talked to, but it's just you know Bo Burnham, social media. There's just a world of it that uh, he puts into context that I, as an old guy was not necessarily quite hip to. So it's a it's an engaged conversation. Obviously, I have some dug-in opinions about certain things, but also it's one of those conversations where I'm learning things about the business I'm in, and I'm also being a bit of a stubborn 
Old Man. Again, the book is called Comedy Book, How Comedy Conquered Culture and the Magic That Makes It Work. It's now available wherever you get books. And this is me and the author of that book, Jesse David Fox, uh, getting into it back at the garage in Los Angeles. So I read the whole book. The whole book. That's so, I really appreciate it. Is anyone else doing that? More people than I expected. Oh, yeah? Like, like who? You mean people who, who are interviewing you? Uh, or yeah. just in general? Well, I think both. I think. How long has it been out? It's been out for about a, a little less than a week. Yeah. But I've had people who I sent it to said they're either planning on just reading the beginning and then saying they read the whole thing or um, comedians reading the sections that I write about them and then being like, you know what? I'll read the whole book. Oh, yeah? Which I expected comedians to. Like, look. which comedians would that be? <laughs> That you didn't say anything bad. You said, like, which comedians... Well, the book has only been out recently, so it's, I think it's the excuse. I, I, I was talking to John Early yesterday. Who? John uh, Early. Oh, okay, yeah. And I read about him yeah. and Caperland, and he, he read that part, and he really appreciated it, and then he said he's excited to go back to the beginning and read the, the rest of the book. Well, that, well, it's interesting about people, like, just even getting into the book, because, like, I embark on this thing, and, you know, I'm uh, kind of a through line in there. Yeah. I, I feel that on some level, our conversations and this show has uh, contextualized a lot of stuff for you. Huge. Yeah. I imagine that you wouldn't have read Denial of Death. Hmm. If it wasn't had, for this show. Hadn't I talked about it forever? I, I think it. I think that is probably true. I don't know if it was on my radar, but now that I'm trying to remember if I had any source material for that other than you talking about it all the time. Yeah. But it is, that is why, like, it is a very Mark Maron book beyond the fact that you're in it a lot and the WTF is in it a lot. And, yeah. you, and your, those early episodes shaped my interest and a lot of where my career went. Yeah. Yeah. That denial of death and the perspective of that book is also huge throughout the entire book, even though I only mention it once. Right. Well, I mean, it's one of those, it's why I always talked about it, yeah. you know, in terms of framing uh, that idea of transference onto, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's very helpful yeah. somehow when you're, especially when you lack belief <laughs> yes. and you cr you crave understanding. Yeah. And I think also the idea of the craving of belief, trying to find things, trying to find meaning, I think is a really big thing for me and a thing that I... I, I try to explore and i think part of what this book is is about like we're in a time post religion for a lot of people yeah and and <laughs> very not post religion for others <laughs> yes if you can still call it religion <laughs> but there is a, a search for something to replace it and and there's lots of things that have been replacing it good and bad and i think for a lot of people comedy and comedians as tellers of information and organizers of the world have been a source of both comfort and like perspective. So I think that is in it as well, which is like, especially on the internet, I think the value of comedians has only increased because people are like, I need something to hold on to. I need someone to trust. Yeah. And comedians, for better or for worse, have become those people. Yeah. I don't like, you know, I think that was an evolution of things. So I don't think that that was always the way it was. Right. Yeah. I think that because I just read Cliff Nestroff's book, Outrage, 
And I, I read them back to back. And there is some crossover, but he's doing a, a, a deeper dive into the history of controversy. Now, it seems that, and I'm not going to lose that thread, but it seems that, you know, your book is is really about how culture, in, how comedy impacts culture now. Mm. You know, you go back a bit, but it's really, we're talking the last 20, what, 20, 25? I think so, from 1990 on. I, I, I Organized it partly when millennials grew up and also post the comedy boom of of the 80s of the 80s. So like when comedy because you can see just a clear trajectory of where comedy evolved and also because the Internet is in the 90s. So I think it's really about like what we think of as a modern culture. But I like that thread that, you know, you talk about that. I don't know that in my uh, my understanding or, you know, I, I'm not in con- in contention with you mm-hmm. on on many points in this, I, I think it elucidated some things okay. uh, for me in a way. But I mean, this is my life. Like yeah. you're you're on the outside. You yes. know, I've been doing comedy professionally since 1988. Yeah. So I started comedy at the end of the boom. Mm-hmm. And you know, we always heard it. It was this mythological time yeah. where you know you go to clubs and. <laughs> And it became sort of a joke where the con- the the club owner would be like, I don't know what's going on. It was packed last week, and yeah. you're like, How long ago was that week? <laughs> you know when it was packed. But the idea that that comedy replaces religion, I don't know. I don't know that I I I jive with that. But I I think the idea that you know comedians are looked to to sort of now report something or 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 tell the truth. I, I think that is true culturally. I I don't think that was always the case. I think that somehow or another. Uh, you know, the idea of Lenny Bruce and the idea of George Carlin and the idea of comedy at that moment, you know, that through line. And, and I can, I think prior as well, you know, which everybody tracks, yeah. you know, you go from Lenny to, to Richard and George uh, and they go their directions with it. But I think that that whole idea of comedy comedians as philosophers and truth tellers was really hijacked by these comics that you you know you talk about later in the book who have tribalized Mm -hmm. comedy yeah but i think there's a difference between that truth telling and reporting which i think you you go to great lengths to establish the daily show as a shift in in how a certain age group got their information period yeah yeah and i think it's partly as i say it's not like it came out of nowhere in so much as there were people looking for places to to consume news that they trusted and it and and it's partly that people started trusting mainstream news less and less over the last 40 years as well right part of this shift is because our trust in institutions has decreased significantly so then people are just looking for things and then comedians via John Stewart and the Daily Show was given an opportunity to do this thing and to John's credit they figured out a way of Providing people information that worked really well, right? But a lot of those kids, yeah. like they didn't want to watch the news. The news was yeah, boring. Exactly. It, it wasn't even a, you know this, <laughs> yeah. this evolving distrust of the news. They just didn't give a yeah, shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think if anything, he he elevated the the information and conversation yes. and and social uh, engagement with you know what is happening in the world for a generation that might not have given a shit. Yeah, and I, he was good at it, and they had a large research staff, so there there's things behind it. He also was active in discrediting Fox News primarily, but a lot of cable news in general sure. in terms, and the nature of how the discourse was evolving. Right. right, Like if you look back to him when he was on Crossfire, just the fact the that— The Tucker moment? Yeah, yeah, where he's he's with two journalists, and he leaves that— acting like he has the most journalistic integrity. Now, he also, as a comedian, self-deprecates anytime they try to push back on his journalistic integrity by being like, I'm just, I'm after crank anchors. I don't, yeah. I'm not, but clearly, either if, if even if he didn't want to cop to it, he shaped how a lot of people 
started to want to consume the news. And then also for people younger, they didn't know a time where this didn't exist. So now when they grow up, people maybe 10 years younger than I, 15 years younger than I, comedians are just people that provide context or information about the news. And that is just a fact. They don't know that was ever that was like yeah. that there was like they don't know who Mort Saul is and they don't know that between Mort Saul and John Stewart there was like a gap of just like people directly reading from a newspaper and responding. Yeah. But I mean I don't know that that's a great thing. Oh, I don't you think know, it's a great and, thing and, either. And, and and you know and oddly you know Joe Rogan uses that same dismissal. Mhm. Yeah. You know uh but like let's let's go back to the 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 sort of you know why you did this. Yeah. I mean, I, I know you're a fan, but I, I mean, you, you've got me quoted in there about, and I think this is more so whether people know it or not. And I think a lot of the stuff that you're doing here, this is a, an intellectual approach to this yeah. thing. I mean, you're, you're sourcing it with a lot of uh, philosophers, cultural critics, you know, poets. I mean, you know, you you sort of did your homework to find context for yourself so you could you could write this ambitious yeah. book. Like, I, I don't I don't know really. It's not light reading. I mean, there's jokes in it. No, no, but I mean, I'm not dismissing the book. But oh, you, yeah, yeah. Was, you set out to do yes. something. Yes, I wanted to do an ambitious book. I wanted to say the part of it was not only did I want to write an ambitious book because if I'm going to write a book, I might as well be ambitious. But also I wanted to su- suggest that comedy could have an ambitious book about it. Right. I felt like the level. Stand up. Yeah. Stand up primarily. Yeah. Yeah. But With a little a, sketch. Little sketch. You know. Cable uh, late night in terms of John Stewart and but, then, but really stuff that comes out of stand up and yeah. and and sketch and yeah. you know that would include those yeah guys. yeah live and live comedy yeah the live comedy arts and then but not comedy in general when you, you do source thinkers uh, who deal with the broad idea of what humor yes is. yes and I try to just you know it all it all relates but I do think I often I focus on stand up because stand up is sort of the purest. Of a lot of the sort of um, questions are at its most distilled with stand-up because it is just a person and an audience. And, and and in so much as the book is about both the comedians and audiences and how audiences interact, it is it, I felt useful to sort of focus on that. Right. So when you're when you're deciding to do this, I mean, you know, what shifted in you? Like I imagine when you start first started writing about comedy and what you thought comedy was, that that kind of changed over time. Yes. Right. And it seems like that at the point where you needed to, you know, kind of ground your emotional reaction to comedy the most uh, desperately was was after your brother passed away. Yeah. And and, and, which was tragic and 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 happened quickly. Yeah. And, you know, then all of a sudden, you know, you need it. Hmm. Right. Yeah. And then that must have changed your entire outlook on on how much work you had done. What year was that? That was, it was, the pandemic was 20, so 2019. Sorry, buddy. Thank you. I appreciate that. It's a terrible thing. But, you know, I imagine that deepened your your need to have an understanding. Because when you started this or when you had the idea of writing about comedy, you were just sort of like, I love comedy. Yeah. Right? And I, yeah, and I want to convey that love and I want to show people just the craft of how comedians work. And isn't that interesting? We haven't really seen that in the same way or as, as deeply. And and uh, and appreciating comedians as artists just because I like doing I, – I found it interesting. And, I, and as a journalist, I felt like it's useful to convey what I find interesting to people. But I do think, you know, that experience – you know, traumatic experiences like that 
let you look back at your life and how you experience a, a variety of things. And, um, you know, so my brother passed away and it, it was um, unexpected and hard and I just was not getting over it. And and I went to a comedy show That's on purpose. Not that long ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I and I and I and then COVID happened right afterwards, right? So then that's it, and now everyone, there's a sort of death all around you. Yeah. You know, that's why the Maria Bamford set that I write about in the book that I, I can't talk about without crying. It's it's about her mom. About her mom. The James Corden. The James Corden thing. Yeah. It's it's like. The ability for comedians to give people a space when the world is moving so quickly around them, and that set where she talks about her mom passing away, just so gracefully in a in a context you would never expect a set like that. Yeah, and so you're surprised. You're just like, oh, cool, Maria's doing Corden. Like, I'll watch that. I like Maria a lot. And then she just sort of she says the line, um, "My mother loved life," and yeah. that's that's the only way she says it. Yeah, and I, it, I, I mean, it, it is um, choke you up. Yeah, it's. And it's hard, you know, I write about 9-11 in the book, and, and 9-11 was this one moment, and then we sort of have to process this thing. But COVID was happening as an ongoing yeah. thing, is ongoing while I was writing the book. And it's hard to stop and reflect on a thing while people are sure. continuing to die. And, yeah. she's, and so to give people those five minutes, and I think it, it allowed me to sort of work in the – having that moment happen, having um, – because I first thought of doing a book before – COVID, but yeah. after, after my brother died, but um, it it allows you to sort of look in your entire life. You and, thought about doing before your brother passed. No, no, oh, so I, I it never. All after, all all was after. Yeah, I, I um, essentially did a long article about Adam Sandler. I asked my book agent if and would want a book about only Adam Sandler, and he basically said, "Not really, not not the type of book I would want to do. They would like a biography or sure, something, sure. but not like a sort of heady exercise, right?" And He's like, what about a general book about comedy? And I had um, read the book Ways of Seeing, you know, by John Berger. Sure. And I was like, can you do that for comedy? Can you sort of not just give people opinions about what is good and bad? That was about painting. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, how can you look at art differently? And so it's like, can I do that for comedy? Which is sort of you look at it sort of abstractly. And and then COVID happened. So then death was sort of all around. And so that was going to be a theme no matter what because I was writing the book. But I do think that happening made me revisit and, and and the decision where I was in this sort of I was stuck in this this moment of grief and and making an active decision to go see Reggie Watts, being like, maybe this will make me feel better. And and having such a high expectation for this show to be like, my brother passed away and I need this comedian. Yeah, what do you got? To save this. Yeah. And I and I then it just went and it really did. And Unbelievably, even though, and but that's also an improvisational yeah. music experience. Yeah, so it was just sort of I was in it, and I felt connected to people, and I didn't feel so isolated. And and part of what that experience, that plus COVID, and looking back, is that my by nature I am um, I am prone to detachment. I'm prone to being in my head. Yeah, um, I think that is sort of a genetic de- predisposition. My, my mom passed away one oh seven. I think that also. Is is part of it, which is just sort of, um, you, it's a protective thing, right? You, yeah. you get less invested with people, then you're less likely to be hurt when things go sideways. Well, and, that's interesting. I mean, you know, you're lucky you didn't have deeper mental and emotional problems. Yeah. I mean, is your dad still around? Yeah. 
But that, I mean, I and I get that, and I get that from my own perspective that I, I know that you know comedy is a way of of deflecting. Yeah, it's a way of uh, you, you know kind of hijacking uh, the emotional tone of a yeah. conversation. It's a way of disarming. You know, yeah. you know, we talked about that, and I think it, it's in the book. But but in terms of if if you're a person that that is isolated. Um, who else is going to make you laugh? Yeah. You need it. Yeah. It's like that. It's like the Martin Starr character. Yeah. In uh, Freaks and Geeks. Yeah. That, that moment that everybody loves so much where he's just sitting at home, you know, watching Shandling on Merv Griffin or something. And then and Judd having that experience as well. And me having that experience as well. For however you're isolated or weird or, in, you know, uh, socially incapable, that, you know, the connection that comedy makes with you yeah. is is deep and everlasting and necessary. Yeah. So that's where you're coming from. Yeah, that's where I'm coming from. And I and I think that is you it really underlined how powerful it could be when not taken for granted and not treated cynically when when the when the comedian is being open, right? When yeah. when if the audience is being open and the comedian can be open, really remarkable things can happen. And I don't discredit other art forms ability to do that. I just understand comedy. Comedy works for my brain. I mean, that's that. That's, it's also immediate. Yeah. And you feel in your body, right? It's yeah. like you are as, as far back in your, your you, you might be in your head as much you want. But if you're laughing, your body moves. And I laugh. I'm a very physical laugher. And that is that it, it's, it's such a like a visual metaphor of you being being pulled into the present. Yeah, and also yeah, it's uncontrollable if yeah. you if you surrender to it. Which you know, I'm just realizing this now, which is with grief as well. Yeah. Is that though it's not coming from the outside. Yeah. Really. You know, you're not looking for it, but it, it in terms of sadness and and physicalizing it and and actually crying, it's uncontrollable. Yeah. For a while anyways. Yes. Which is that's interesting. Yeah, and you have to be in it. And I think part of it is, you know, I went back to work after my, my brother passed away fairly quickly just because I wanted, you know, I wanted to do something. And I think that's a normal thing to do. And But you're doing these sort of two things of like, oh, I want to process this, but I also, you know, I just want to get on my light bulb. And, and that, that push and pull. And I think there is something to just sort of giving into it. And I think— For a while, yeah. right? You know, but it, 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 it's going to— I mean, and you you've learned this is that like you don't you're only going to get over it when you get over it. And you don't yeah. ever really get over it, and the and the grief just sort of levels off somehow and integrates itself into your being. Yeah, and that's yeah. going to be there forever. That yeah. that sense of loss for whatever it is. I I'm not I I I'm not sure that we're not constantly all grieving almost everything. Yeah, as each day goes by, you know, there's loss. You just yeah. lost another day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you are getting closer to whatever <laughs> yeah, the amount of yeah, days is. The I, inevitable. Yeah, and I think that is, it's it, you know, you lose a parent at a young age. It's it's hard for you not to sort of see the world as versions of loss. And I think I, and I think comedy, at least from my understanding, it helps with that. There's, there's something sort of, there is something comedic about the fact that we die in a sort of like, in a sort of dark way. But I do think um, th- the... The sort of how would I put it? There, that we're sort of all here and we're doing this thing that doesn't yeah. make any sense, which is existing. Yeah, and and at any point we sort of die. It's yeah. too much, I think, for for a brain to sort well, of. This process. is the denial of death. Yeah, thing. yeah. So, and I think. Yeah. And and 
when I reread Denial Death before I started writing the book, I sort of had a long phase of procrastinating where I just read books sort of maybe that I could pull from. Yeah. And so I reread that and there was the idea of legitimate foolishness. And the sort of the sort of cure for neuroses is this need to sort of like and it's it's probably an odd translation, but essentially like the need to not take things seriously, the need to be silly or to essentially like be um pre-human right where we're just sort of like laughing and playing and not afraid right and is the only way to be and like how can you find yourself to be not afraid considering all the bad things that are constantly happening all the time right well well okay so that's the groundwork and and you know you do go through trying to make you know a, a pretty big context yeah you know for you know what comedy is culturally what it is physically what it is you know as an audience member emotionally but you know going through this you know you know piece by piece with you know audience headings like audience funny timing politics truth laughter the line context community connection and i think you're pretty thorough in all of them but you you know going into this you know for me as a comic you, you know you've got to before the internet mm-hmm. and and maybe before before social media platforms you know and and even maybe a little before um comic produced shows yeah. or or the mic culture or or even uh the first wave of alternative yeah. comedy not being you know san francisco uh, in the 50s but you know being yeah. uh what would it be the mid 90s yeah, yeah. right yeah that as a stand-up who started like I did, where, where you ha- your only option was the club, yeah, and the open mic at the club, and then going through the club system, and then alternative happened, and in, in, in for me it was different than what it became or what it was thought of, and I thought you captured it fairly well. Oh, okay. but like one of the arguments me and Brendan you know used to have a lot about. The second wave of alt comedy is like, you know, what happened to many of those people? Yeah. Is that it didn't necessarily have that profound an impact on comedy. Yeah. Per se. And what I started to sort of think, and, and the reason I f- found the book, the the last few chapters specifically about the two or maybe three generations at this point after me yeah. and how they're doing it. Uh, you know, you, you want to believe that the fundamentals don't change in terms mm-hmm. of standard, but they, they do. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, people, it, you know, don't look to live comedy as much as they used to. But nonetheless, I guess my point is, is that having been in this business for almost 40 years, everything that happens, mm-hmm. despite what happened, you know, after the technological ability to generate, you know, quickly and efficiently yeah. and cinematically, everything that happens in comedy, almost 98% of it, I've seen before. Sure. <laughs> and... And 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 it's guys like you, and I'm not saying I'm, you can take that tone, however you want. Mm-hmm. It's your job to contextualize it yeah. for whoever gives a shit about what you're saying. But the truth of the matter is, is that you know there have been people taking risks, being vulnerable, losing their mind, pushing the line way beyond anything that you could even imagine. Mm-hmm. You know, for as long as I've been doing comedy, and and certainly you know for probably before that. Yeah. It's just that it doesn't have any cultural significance until it does because of popularity or because of you. Yeah. I think it's one of two things, which is either a lot of the examples are like I don't I can't imagine anyone has invented anything new because there's been so many comedians just not on anyone's radar in whatever city doing things. They might have 
you know, like the difference is, you know, like in the example of like Hannah Gatsby and Annette is that they did a special where there was large pockets of not laughing on purpose. And and I said, they, you know, they were not the first comedian who was not funny for half their set. The difference is this became an international phenomenon. And as a result, it must be reckoned with because that means there's something about this special and there's something about culture was ready for that and then i can comment right. on, i can comment on culture because they cared about it but the, but 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 when you break it down Hannah Gatsby was an efficient yes. working comedian who knows how to do comedy despite what anybody may you know whatever whatever any yeah. thick-headed they had, person they had done a decade of yeah, stand up who it would whatever thick-headed person decided it wasn't comedy and but it also spoke to the moment of of patriarchy out of control and, and Me Too. That's the thing. Me Too is the reason it became a sensation. If you ask Hannah Gatsby, I have asked Hannah Gatsby, they weren't like, when they were a, a fairly popular Australian comedian doing this, they weren't like, well, this will be an international sensation that makes me a huge American comedian. And they worked through it, like all comedians, and also a philosophical predicament of, I think comedy is going in the wrong direction in whatever way. And there has been generations of that since the, I'm sure, the, I don't, I've never read this, but I'm sure the comedians of the 1950s thought that the hacks of the 19, you know, then that not the 19, it's 1940s to the 1930s, and then obviously the the Shirley Berman's s. That's obviously a huge revolution where people are pushing back on certain orthodoxies. Point is, they they are in a predicament. They did a thing. What makes it the, the, what this book is is one. It is a notable. They they succeeded in what they were trying to do, and it resonated. So then I could be like, why did what what is it resonating? And was it how does it reflect? Where the culture is, which is sort of Me Too is happening, and where the culture is with comedy, which is a point they make, which is our access to laughter is at an all-time high. We have ability to find things that make us laugh very easily, which some comedians believe puts a comedian, the comedians in a position to do something – the freedom to do something else and audiences that are happy to have that because they don't need the comedians to do that. Now, that's not all comedians have to do that, obviously, but there is a freedom to do shows that feel – still count – and feel like stand-up, but have a lot more room for different types of storytelling approach. And right now, there's a lot of people doing one-people shows, in, in, at least in New York. I don't know about here. Yeah, but I mean, but that, you, you know, what Hannah Gatsby implies, you know, when something like that becomes culturally polarizing and then, you know, politically motivating, mm. not unlike we talked about, or, or you talked about, and I talked about with you, you know, what, how... How 9-11 splintered the comedy, the comedy community in terms of, of tolerance versus not tolerance in terms mm-hmm. of jingoism, in terms of, you know, potential uh, racism and that stuff. You know, that was sort of a, a, a big moment. But, but I think Hannah had a big moment because that was able to galvanize at least some, you know, progressive momentum around, uh, you know, taking on the patriarchy and, and feminist ideas uh, and, and, and modern feminism. Mm-hmm. And that was aligned with some stuff that was going on in television. But but ultimately, you know, what happens then is that the other side gets fortified as yeah, well. Yeah. And 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 now we have a situation which I think you handled very well, which is something I talk about on the show a lot about, you know, tribalization of comedy that you were able to track in your book to the idea of community and that, you know, that comedy is, you know, a, a tool of community building and you cite bell hooks. Uh, but, you know, when you're citing bell hooks, it's usually a proactive community yes. that, that we're building here. Yeah. And, and now you have a, a tribalized 
uh, comedy culture because mainstream show business has broken down and now people can make their own show businesses, mm-hmm. which I think is the advent of technology. Yeah. Anybody can make their own show business. But, you know, some people who deal in networks uh, in terms of building their own networks and building their own uh, worlds like, you know, Rogan uh, primarily, uh, you no longer need mainstream show yeah. business at all. So then you have that community who also believes that they can dictate what comedy is and what yeah, it yeah. isn't. And, and I think that that's a problem on both sides of polarizing yeah. comedy in terms of community is that, you know, when Hannah Gatsby says, you know, comedy needs to change, I think that got more of a fuck you than from comics than anything she was saying yeah, about yeah. feminism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think we all kind of agreed and saw her point, but it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. You're telling me that I can't. Yeah, so, <laughs> yeah. but, 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 but to go back again in terms of repetition and why, you know, I think what you're doing is important uh, to who it is important to. See, that's the biggest problem, really, yeah. is that you've spent this amazing amount of time, you know, creating this, you know, context yeah. of of why and what, you know, comedy is, the who, what, when, and where of how it impacts culture, but ultimately the audience for this book is going to be who? Well, I, that's the question. I don't know yet, right? The book has only been out. I mean, the hope was the audience, I wrote it for people who love comedy as much and follow it as much as I do, people that listen to this show, people listen to other comedy podcasts. The hope is, you know, I'm trying, like, I, you know, I did Bert's podcast, right? So maybe if I do some of those people who are who also fashion themselves comedy fans but are siloed to a different part of the comedy world will read this book and disagree with some things and understand things a little bit more. I mean, the goal of this was just sort of to evolve the conversation. Now, is it is there going to be a large group of people on the right who read the book and sort of take it in kind to be like, you know what, I've changed my mind? No, but like maybe we'll just sort of loosen the nature of the conversation so we're not having the same sort of, you know, as we said, there's cycles of this or, or of free speech is this and no, we can transgress it this way. And then it's it's been around for as Cliff's book captures. It's like the eight, late 1800s. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So and the hope is there's also then the people who don't consume a lot of comedy but do know it as a cultural force and have been curious about how that happened. I was in, I was interviewed years ago. Um, I think right at the beginning of the pandemic, I was interviewed. I was on a podcast, and we were talking about just comedians during the pandemic, and the uh, cultural critic just goes, why are we talking to you? Not like dismissive, but like, how did this happen? How did I care about what comedians were doing during a national tragedy? And that's, this book is kind of explains how that happened, where in, I assume when you're starting, when a national tragedy happened, the first thing wasn't like, well, what are comedians saying about that? And that is the thing that has evolved in my lifetime, which is like when things happen, when there are mass shootings or whatever, a lot of times people look at comedians. or And, and if they don't say something, something people are dismissed, like disappointed in comedians if they don't. Yeah, but what's shifting since, since yeah. then is like, you know, it was like after 9-11 – which you talk about in the book, like comedy is dead. But, you know, like yeah. for me, I've been doing a joke on stage about, you know, distance and yeah. which you talk about in the book. But I was the type of a comedian at a different time where I needed to address it immediately because it was so juiced up and it was there was no way it was going to work. Yeah. But but you <laughs> needed to you, you wanted to get a jump on that yeah, joke. Yeah. So I do. I'm, ta- I'm telling a story about, you know, uh, walking around with Louie. But I say I was hanging out with the previous version of Louis, who, who was my friend. And, you know, he was about to do his first letterman. And the Oklahoma City bombing had just happened. Mm-hmm. 
And I was the kind of comic that was like, you know, you got to get on that. Yeah, yeah. Like, I, and I say in the act now, I say I was very busy on nine twelve. <laughs> you know, like I got to. Yeah, yeah. You know, so, and we did, and yeah. I think you got it in here. Yeah. Some of those quotes, you yeah. know, from from the guys that were were in the clubs right after nine eleven. But I was telling Louie, he's like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm like, what do you mean? You got to mention it. How are you not going to? Yeah. How are you not going to bring it up in his five minute set? Yeah. On television. Yeah, and uh, and then he the story goes that he went and talked to Robert Morton, the producer, uh, you know, and Morton was like, how are you feeling? And, and Louis was like, well, I, I don't know what to do with this Oklahoma City thing. Marin, Mark Marin thinks I should br- mention it. And, and Morton says, yeah, that's why Mark Marin's not doing the show. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But the point that I'm, I'm trying to make here in terms of looking to com- comedy, yeah. it was not it was not for information, though. Mm. It was for it was for the ability to compartmentalize, yeah. you know, the, the idea that that comics like, you know, like right now as a Jew and as a comic, you know, people are like, what do you think of, of Israel? And it's like, that's a it's, it's a trick question. And on some level, all that it would serve for, you know, yeah. like whoever's asking me, well, what do you, what is your point of view on it? Mm. Because if I don't honor it, then I'm a fuck. Yeah. So, you know, that's part of the incentive. Mm. But I think that comics, you, you, this idea that comics are truth tellers, you know, is is part of this free speech right wing frame yeah, yeah, yeah. at this point in time, you know, because who the fuck are comics? And you, they're going to do some version of whatever they got off the Internet or yeah. or, or, yeah, or, yeah, yeah. or deconstruct, you know, that. I mean, the better ones are going to say this is all bullshit. Yeah. But I, I come from that. You know, I come from this idea. And, you know, you, you give fairly short shrift to Hicks because he doesn't happen in the parameters of what yeah, you're exploring yeah. here. But this was a guy, you know, whether whatever line you think it is or whatever is required of a comic, that would clear rooms mm-hmm. on purpose. Yeah. And, and, you know, that was happening, you know, before anybody in the alternative world was creating something not even as menacing mm. to, to make that point. Yeah. And I guess what I'm coming back to is that, and what everybody says is it's, it's subjective, right? Sure, yeah. And that that is yeah. the bottom line because, you know, you give the proper amount of attention, which is many pages, to Maria Bamford, who by far is the the best stand-up comic yeah. in decades. Yeah, in my lifetime. I, I, I say I – say, there's su- comedy subjective other than Richard Pryor and Maria Bamford are the greatest comedians right. of all time. Right. That's, and that's how I orient it, which is like if that and that if that to me is the value system is those two comedians, then we can start thinking about what good and what what we mean by good, because comedy is too subjective. And it, what you laugh at is so built into you as a person. And there isn't a history like a lot of art forms have of of creating value systems of knowing how to appreciate things. I mean, right. this book is somewhat starting that conversation. Right. But yes, I, I I there was an earlier draft where I had I had a good amount about Maria, but not as much. And and um, my colleague Catherine Van Arendonk, who writes for Vulture, was like, I thought you might have, would have a little bit more Maria in it, just because I know how much you appreciate her. And I and and then in a later draft, I I think I added all the stuff in the last chapter, which really. Uh, you know what happened? She did the late night set after she said that. So then I was like, well, this is this gets at the other part of it. And even when you brought up that late night set as being this moment of respite yeah. from the noise of culture to emotionally connect with grief in an honest way, you said that like that's something that happens often. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry for saying that. Do, do, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. It, that, like, you know, this finally yeah, a comedian did what they were supposed to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, no one's going to do that. But I, I think this, it That's also, 
<laughs> it also speaks to, you know, my shifting attitudes, and I was talking to Brendan about what I thought, you know, the edgy comedy really was. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think that, you know, as we get older and as we live some life, you start to realize, you know, what is the nature of real risk? Mm-hmm. Now, you know, and you, the two sides are, is that you have the, the school of Hicks where it's what you say. Yeah. And, 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 and then you get from there, unfortunately, to what are you too woke? Yeah, yeah. Right. You know, and I, and I think you, you handle them very well too the legion of skanks and and you know what evolved out of that you know this is not these are not ideological guys yeah yeah these are you know (laughs) just sort of like we're just kind of nihilistic clowns yeah yeah that are trying to get away with something Mm -hmm. and fuck some people's heads up yeah yeah you know cause some shit but i think it it might i don't know if you characterize it this way in the book it's it's childish yeah 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 it's like, you know, let's see if we can make the grown-ups mad. Yeah, yeah. It's right? just saying a thing that people take seriously and be like, not. It's just like, it truly is like and a- we've all done that <laughs> yeah, with yeah, God. Yeah, yeah. Do you, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. But but let's talk about this idea of, of edge is that when you deal with, if these are your, your poles that you're trying to, you know, create a narrative in between or, or, or a, a theory or, or yeah. a conversation is prior and, and, and Maria, is that the- the essential force of both of them is vulnerability. Yes, 100%. That is the thing. That is the thing that I, I – and and understanding what vulnerability means. Like I, I talk about it in a lot of the chapters, but like mainly the, the chapter on truth because we had – this idea of a comedian truth teller is a narrative not necessarily pushed forward by comedians, but in terms of sort of media's understanding of what comedians they thought were doing. But and, that's also yeah. – uh, uh, um, that's truth telling through, uh, through language. Yeah, yeah. That that you know, yeah, yeah. so you're trying to integrate the idea of vulnerability as a fundamental truth. Yes, yes. Because the general understanding is, it's what did he say? Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to move. I mean, saying is, a, I think, the big part of it, which is, I think, I think, I say multiple times, which is, there's been too much focus on what comedians say instead of how they say it, right? And I think, and and by how, I mean this, the entire context of the person saying it. And so, you know, I, I contrast. Louis, partly because Louis at a time was heralded as the most truthful comedian that's ever lived. There were just so many. That's just the and some of it he helped foster, but some of it was just people decided. But truthful in the way that he was saying yeah. what 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 shouldn't be said. Yes, that's what they actually meant. Yeah, about sex and child rearing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And then, and I I I I sort of break down that sort of way of thinking of it and focus on what I think is more truthful in a, a sort of deeper way, which is sort of comedians who are vulnerable. And I talk about Maria and I talk about Tig when she went on stage with cancer. I talk about Margaret Cho. And the idea is uh, I, often you hear a certain type of comedian be like, oh, that guy's fearless on stage, right? And usually it's a guy. And by fearless, they mean they're willing to, you know, make fun of anyone. They're willing to say any words. They have no fears while they're on stage. But that to me is not being fearless, especially because if you're doing it to an audience, who wants that? But it's the know, opposite of that. Once we become professionals and we can make it happen again and again, you're fearless. Yeah. Yeah. Period. Yeah. But but I but yeah, right. It's it's used to to connote courage. Yes. Where it, it if there's no ramifications for saying certain things, then there's 
It's not that to me. Should mean there should be no yeah. fear involved. Well, that's right. But yeah, now we have these bubbles. So fearlessness is like this idea that like I might get canceled. Like, yeah. no, you won't. You're yeah. not talking to anybody who's going to cancel you. And you're not you. famous, right? You're you are famous well, in your yeah, world. It's, it's hack. Yeah. 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 It's it's but and it's it's okay. it's a cheap way to raise the stakes of jokes that are probably underwritten, right? It's like, oh, there's not enough tension because you you the audience like when I say the words I'm not supposed to say. So then I have to make it seem like we're doing something dangerous just so there's more energy to but it. But let's get back to vulnerability. So so but what I think is actually dangerous is putting yourself out there when your your body is physically at risk as i say like both you know tig thought she would lose work by telling people she was sick or there is a history of people not getting work because they are open about having mental health issues that is to then talk about it on stage in in this town is a is risky is a thing that a comedian could be fearful of so to do it anyway because you sort of are compelled to as an artist and or you want to help people, to me, is a, is a noble pursuit, is, but, is, is taking the art form. But not, my, right, absolutely. But not to diminish it, the, the, the industry was able to carry it yeah, then, though. Yeah. It was not the same time. Yeah. I mean, when there, the issue was, well, we can't use her because we can't insure her. She's yeah. got cancer. Or, or you know, she's going to bring the audience yeah. down. You know, we now have a – we do have safe rooms yeah. because audiences have been built. Yeah. But in the general population, you, you know, like when I think about Pryor, when, you know, you, you know, people have these conversations between the goat being, you know, Pryor or Chappelle is that, you know, there, there's no yeah, there's yeah. no comparison yeah. because, you know, Pryor could not help himself. And in terms of how he lived his life, which was out of control mm-hmm. uh, and, and also his need to share it. Yeah. So you're you're dealing with somebody who's dealing with these vulnerabilities of the experience of of growing up in a brothel, and then you know having a a a self destructive streak that he's completely at odds yeah. with all the time because the most vulnerable things about Pryor outside of you know whatever he did in terms of bridging the race gap for me you know the risk of 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 profound humiliation. Mm-hmm. Because of how you lived your yeah, life yeah, yeah, and yeah. what you did and then processing that on stage is is the most human thing. Yeah. And he could do death. He could do all that stuff because yeah. he grew up in a very uh, electrified and and um, lively childhood. Yeah. And also the thing that I, why I mentioned Richard and, and Maria together is they're also both exceptionally talented, right? They're not just like – Good joke writers, which they are. Right, they, they, they can do voices. They can yes, do act outs, right. right? And that I think why Richard is number one, and I, I I can't imagine any conversation that is not that is that he took an art form that was not even close to being ready for it. That's right. And just by the sheer will of his charisma and talent and willing to take and risks. willing to take risk, he he modernized the art form, right? Totally. Like and right. and so. And so, so ahead of time that it took a very long time for people to catch up to it. And, and, and even the idea of there being safe audiences was, is, was long. It would be another 20, 30 years before sure. that happened. Now, I like that there are safe audiences because I do think it benefits the art form for the audience to be receptive of people. Like, I under, and I do understand the benefit of um, a somewhat more antagonistic relationship sometimes because it allows you to figure out how to translate the jokes to wider audiences. But – Without the audience that is supportive, it, well, I'll say this: if you have a supportive audience, that means you should be taking risks in terms of vulnerability. In in, in terms of my value systems, aren't for that's right. If you have a supportive audience, the other way, which is we don't need you to take risks 
in terms of vulnerability, but we just want to hear you say the words. That's the opposite of a supportive well, audience. But, well, that is a condensing audience. But, but, but see, like, if you, this is the other point that I have where I get argumentative yeah. with ideas uh, uh, about comedy is that, you know, my generation – you know, came up with the 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 job was to entertain yes. strangers. Yeah, I understand, and and that you know you should be able to do that. That the that what came out of the comedy boom was that you know people would go to the comedy club to watch comedy. Yes, there was a time where Maria Bamford would have been on Carson, mm-hmm. and she could have handled yeah. it, and you know, because the only Precedent for that is is Jonathan Winters. Yeah, and 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 he was just as mentally ill as Maria, and 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 all the talent and everything else. But but what I'm saying is what I've been thinking about Maria is that you know you put her on stage in front of a general audience right now, you know without any preconceptions, that there's going to be half of the people that are like I don't get it. Yeah, is she okay? And 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 I just even creating that character for that three seconds. I'm mad at them. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> or I try not to be. I try to be like, can that audience who would who'd re- respond that way, can they evolve? And they have, right? I think you put Maria on stage at an even lesser. Like, I think there's even more context for her now because there's so many comedians who are more broad who are influenced by her. I mean, like, just the fa- fact of how many comedians talk about mental health on stage now compared to 20 years ago is significant. Like and not just in sort of alternative spaces broadly defined. All comedians, it is it, it's it's just a thing that people but they, are... they've always been doing that. You know, I used to talk about how you know the the language of contemporary comedy for for decades in the 60s and 70s was fundamentally self-reflective, yeah. fundamentally Jewish and and fundamentally driven by the idea of analysis. Yeah. This is the weird thing. It's like you would see people do you, you know wh- my reaction to Rathaniel was was yeah. uh, I was furious. I was furious. Yeah. And when I talked to him I was furious. Yeah. And, and I, I could, could tell and I write about it in the book. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I was like I didn't know if this conversation was only going to be about your interview with Gerard. But I knew it was going to be a little bit about it. But you did. Well, yeah, but, but you know, you had you frame it in you know a, the the final the beginning of the latest um, version of what mm-hmm. you would call alternative comedy, yeah. and, and that you know it, it has its place. But you know, outside of Bo Burnham, who I think you know out of all of them, as as a comedic visionary, yeah. well, he's the guy. You, you know, yeah. like, you know, that that thing he did during the pandemic and also all his stuff yeah. is that this is a guy that that takes emotional risk, but also is is insanely talented, like you said. Yeah. Uh, and intellectually uh, up for the, the challenge. But but even with the intimacy that you claim and 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 having that being some sort of uh, indicator of, of a new generation, mm-hmm. like I'm having a hard time seeing that. Yeah, I think you're you're looking for a sort of transparency that Gerard is not going to – that I think when you th- – I, th- I think it's completely fair. I think the type of vulnerability that you respond to is not necessarily the type of intimacy that Gerard is after. Like I think he's more interested in the sort of the, the sort of cinematic feeling of closeness as much as actually feeling like you know what this person's soul is. And when I write about him – in the book, it is partly about the moving forward of specials filmed like as an art, as an art form 
and and essentially thinking about his Nathaniel as much as an actor trying to make you. To, as much as a okay, prick. I'll give him that. Fine, he's a good actor, but you know he sits in here pretending like you know he was shooting from the hip that night. He wasn't. That I and that's why I understand. I think we would agree that that is where you guys were up, which is he is doing. He's still that press tour around Nathaniel. In my opinion, and I have not spoken to him, felt like a continued performance. The entire thing was a performance piece, which is like I am going to say play the part of a person who's doing this sort of vulnerable work. I don't know why that is why he did it, but I can see why, especially one-to-one, you'd be like, you're not actual, you're not, this is the same thing, which is you're not being vulnerable in so much as you're not scared to do any of this because he's so in control of whatever that instrument is. Yeah, and also he doesn't give a fuck. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, that's a, like, I, there's, and and like, you know, I talked to Drew Michael and, and, you know, and okay, so if you're going to say it's about the structure of the special and taking that to the next level, which is always a challenge. Yes. And they've it's been tried in a lot of different ways. And, you know, I, I asked Bo to direct my last one. Yeah. Just because I thought, well, maybe you could do something interesting with me because, you know, I'm actually a fucking, you know, bleeding wound yeah. half the time. But, you know, he was polite, but he said he was in a deal with Netflix. But why would he want to? I was condescending to him. <laughs> I might, you know. Uh, and also, I mean, you're the the— End Times Fund that Lynn did, I think, is is it is when I wrote a piece about specials as a visual medium, that is one of the examples that I point to. I yeah. think like she well, she, she knew. Yeah. She was like, This is what this guy does. I know him well. I'm gonna stay in him. Yeah. And she also I remember I think we talked about it a little bit. I asked you about how she shot it, and you you know, she had the intimacy of it. But you didn't mention this, which was she shot you to seem like um paranoid. There were certain shots. She shot you through like windows, so yeah. you looked like a lunatic that was going falling apart. <laughs> well, she was hiding that from me, and so I, <laughs> and I, I always wondered if you if she never told you she did that because if you watch the special, she tracks you. Yeah, it's like it's like you're being watched, not yeah. like you're being watched like an audience, like yeah. you're being watched by the CIA. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it is so profound. So when I wrote that, knowing that you have not mentioned that. The cinematographer commented to that article being like, that's exactly what we were trying to do. <laughs> so you've been – what's funny is I've you're part of a movement yeah. that you have somewhat antagonism towards, well, no, but not complete antagonism towards. No, but – no, all I want is credit. Yeah. Well, I gave it to you. <laughs> Thank you. You're the intro paragraph of this example of things. Okay, good. Thank you. See, I, you know, I, well, I, I guess – I, to be fair, I give Lynn the credit. Would, she deserves it. Um because, like, I know what I do. Yeah. And I can't pretend to do what I do. Yeah. So when people pretend to do what I do or pretend to do it, uh, period. Yeah. Like, even with Drew Michael, like, the the device of the special that had laughter, whatever yeah. Gerard was trying to yeah. do with that first one, he fucked that guy. Yeah. <laughs> is what he did. Yeah. He, he sold him a bill of goods, and it was a, it was a faulty but experiment. But I, I, I do think, I th- and I think Drew would agree, but it allowed Drew— to then, when he, Drew does his next special and the thing after that, to be like, well, I'm the guy that did that, right? There is something about even a big swing and a miss in Hollywood that they think he was like, well, that's the guy that takes big swings. You, he can get into the room. Oh, like, yeah? What's he doing now? Well, he's he's doing a new show. I haven't seen it yet, which sucks. But, you know, he's doing a new show 
that's only about sort of the hearing having hearing loss. Of oh, so now he's returning to the hook that he should have started with. But he has he's it seems like he's doing it in a specific way that he uses audio cues. I, I haven't. I, again, well, good. I, hey, look, he's a creative guy. Yeah. My problem with him was that you know he he assumes the mantle of self importance that you know I've seen other people do, sure. and I've seen similar jokes. So that my big problem with him was is that you know you if you're going to pay homage then you know don't do it exactly the same mm-hmm. way yeah like you know he he's of an a, a type of comedian that there's only a handful yeah and you know you've got to sort of own that legacy and not pretend like you invented it mm-hmm. does that make- I, don't think, I understand i don't think he thinks it. I, I i remember the interview <laughs> how how you it was a it was a fundamental disagreement of how much you thought he was specifically doing one specific thing and not owning it and i do think partly Drew was commenting on that legacy as much as participating in that legacy. All right. But um, – this, Look, this is where I'm just a cranky old guy. That yeah, but I think the enough. thing that we – You're the only guy that gives me credit for anything. I appreciate it. I think – I mean, you're you're throughout this book for a lot of reasons. I'm the I mean, closer. Yeah. Yeah. You are the closer. I remember when we had that – because I hadn't had that. I, that was very deep in the writing process. And I just needed something to get to Maria and the sort of last paragraph, which I had. And then we had that interview and I realized, oh, that chapter starts with my interview with you and you saying the thing about like when we look back at this time, yeah. we'll, we'll realize how – lonely we all were and then sort of we come back around and and it so yes it's very important but i think the fundamental disagreement we have or the fundamental different perspective and i think it's why i wrote this book yeah is you because of your experience and because you have to do the job believe the job of a comedian is to be an entertainer which i think is a completely valid perspective but i don't believe i'm an entertainer <laughs> I, it's not why i got into it but you it. believe they should enter you you they have should do the of job it. of a comedian yeah. and I which think, i don't always think is entertainment yeah that's all right fair. so but oh that's fair okay but i don't have to care about the job of the comedian because i <laughs> am not i don't have to go up on thursday okay night, yeah right so then i could just be detached from it and be this is all about you wanting to be a comedian no it? okay go ahead I, 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 as i write a book i, I try it one time it's just not for me <laughs> okay I like like being funny. There's jokes in the book, but yeah. like it's just not. I, yeah. I, I don't. I honestly, I don't like the experience of. You made the right decision. I go appreciate. Ahead. Thank you. Well, that, that's nice. <laughs> um, but go ahead. But uh, yeah. we'll see. I mean, if if we'll see if people how people respond. But what to are you it. saying? Can oh, so get I back think I am um, free to not care about the job of the comedian. To just think about it as a sort of cultural force and yeah. comedians as ideas. And and look, it's. This book is not a detached history or some sort of no, thing. Yeah. It is my perspective on a thing. And and it is – I am manipulating time and I am choosing comedians that fit a sort of idea that I want to come across. There are another thousand comedians that I could have written about. These are the comedians that best exhibited what I was trying to capture. A lot of the times they're famous comedians because – Famous comedians have cultural impact, but there are famous comedians I didn't include because I couldn't figure out how they fit through these sort of ideas of how I see it. But it is – but I'm free to do that because I don't have to yeah. be – I don't have to do the job. And I, and and I, I think th- that's useful. I think comedy benefits from having people whose job is not to do that but to sort of be a conduit. Yeah, between. it helped me. It, it contextualized oh, a lot of stuff for me and and it made me think differently about, you know, even, even – uh, you know, Gerard, who I don't have anything against. Yeah. But like I'm I, you know, it turns out that I'm really sort of dug in mm-hmm. and I and I have principles around what I think it is. Yeah. And and, you know, ultimately, you know, I know what a joke guy is. You know, I know what a guy who's doing something on purpose for effect is. 
I know, you know, what real vulnerability is. Yeah. And for me, you know, whether I like a person or not, if I can see who they are, then I then that's the connection I'm looking for yeah. usually. You know, even if it's a persona, you know, like I can feel that connection yeah. that that's human to me. And 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 I'm sort of like like that. But you know, fun. You know, usually I like pretty goofy comics yeah, when I when too. I when I want to watch comedy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I will. I will also add that you have to be dug in. I think to do the job of an artist, to be a stand-up comedian, you can't be like, "What do I think is comedy right now?" You have to know. But there are people in this book that do that. What? That that, that, that is their drive. That what? what? What do I think comedy is right now? What what kind of mm. tricks do I want? What kind of games do I want to play? You know, like as much as I love Kate Berlant and I watch her and and I think she's very good. Yeah. But but sometimes it seems like an exercise mm. in moving the needle. Uh, which is fine, yeah. But you know, is it uh, a good night out for me? But I'm not that generation. Yeah, yeah. But I, I, but I think she's very bright and she's very smart. But I crave. Have knowing. you seen her new show, the the Kate show? Oh yeah, it's great, and I like that. It's a theater experience, and I, and I think she's great. But I also know she's a very heady person. Yeah, and I know that you know, and I'm enough of a, a, an art person to know when you, you know there are calculated things that are done to 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 make a point or mm-hmm. or or to elevate absurdism yes. for its own importance and i get all that it's and and i understand it and i can appreciate it but i i, I think that you know with me and stand up you know what 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 i want is i want you know just raw humanity yeah. to to either come through to me yeah. or or be on display yeah i also think i i, I compare it to as, as you say, the, the sort of book has goes on these tangents, but I compare it to post-structuralist architecture, right? I put, compare it to people who are motivated deeply, formally, right? They, they, That's right. Okay, they, they want to push back yeah, on it, yeah, right? Yeah. And you, the, I don't think Gerard is being like, every comedian should be exactly like what I'm doing. No. I don't know, but it would be weird. But I think he's just trying to expand the palette of what counts as a spe- special. And I do think... By and, and not unlike Nanette, but by being radically unfinished, this is a gen- maybe this is a generous reading. But by being radically unfinished, it it does push back on how a lot of specials feel radically regimented on the ra- expectations. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, and, and we all try, we all kind of deal with that. Like you know the you know we did the special end times fun in a black box theater by default. Yeah, and I I have a problem with those big theaters, but you know the interesting thing about all those theaters that you always see on comedy specials. I mean, I think the biggest jump was like, don't show the audience Mm -hmm. because that was an old school thing just to be able to cut. Yeah. So that became my big, you know, thing. But, But ultimately... Those old time theaters that the that the comics do them in ha- are so established that they become these passive characters. Yeah, yeah. So it actually showcases the comic, mm, you know, better better than any other other way. Because if you're going to make a character out of the space, right? Yeah. Uh, then that's a distraction. But everybody's used to those dumb old big theaters. <laughs> Do you, yeah, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. So you're just watching the comic and then, you know, but but to your credit, I mean, I think that seeing what, you know, Bo did and what Lynn did and what, you know, people started to do, I think was right. And we all wanted that to happen. But sometimes they're not as effective as just a comic in the no. theater. And that's OK. I mean, yeah. like, ultimately, like, it's just neat. All I care about, not all I care about, I shouldn't say it that way. But like, ultimately, I just want there to push back the idea that there's one way of doing it. Like that, we just have to expand the definition of what specials are and what stand-up can be, and and not because I I particularly 
want it's just that it is I don't want the opposite happening of a sort of shrinking and shrinking and and I and I think you agree which is sort of the people who are most strident of only one way of doing it and it's saying these bad words or whatever are is the most extreme example of you know like I, there's the the type of comedians like comedians only job is to transgress and we we're out there to do this it's like that's not the only job of a comedian it could be yeah but those be, transgressions that those comics talk yeah. about aren't even transgressions exactly and that's the thing that's even sillier i mean is, the, the real transgressions are what you're talking yeah, about I, is yeah. is actually uh, and i understand now that you know if you're going to you contextualize it as art then 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 it has to it has to transgress. It has to evolve, and risks have to be taken. Yeah. You know, transgressions just by you know being a bully and 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 sort of making uh, lives worse for people whose lives yeah. are already pretty bad. And then, but building the momentum in the community to their the, to where <laughs> yeah. they're the they're the the last say yeah. on what comedy is is an army of fucking faux enlightened meatheads who know how to. Uh, to do false equivalencies yeah, yeah. and 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 <laughs> have uh, Socratic arguments, yeah. uh, you know, because they're fueled up with talking points. Who call everybody but their guys hacks mm-hmm. when they don't even know the real. Me- yeah, they yeah, don't yeah. realize that the irony of that. That's what we're up against yeah. because those are the ones that are saying this is how comedy is, mm-hmm. and and it's problematic because those those guys that that movement absorbs a lot of people. Because, you know, in the guise of free speech, you, you know, they align themselves. They don't, I don't think because of their selfishness and their egos and some of them, their nihilistic intent, don't realize how easily appropriated they are yes. by the, the fascist momentum that is real. So when you're pushing back on their context of what comedy is and isn't and the army of fucking morons who claim to be comedy fans, but yeah. that aren't. Yeah. Uh, it's it. That's what's going to diminish it. Yeah, I think and that's so. what's going to diminish democracy. I, you know, not co- co- not even coincidentally. It's yeah, just the, the nature. The limiting of the allowable thought, right? I right. mean, like, look, that's I, right. Like, I do not say in the book they are not that. That doesn't count. And as limiting is is as easy as like, what's this fucking idiot doing? Yeah, yeah. yeah, in an aggressive way, and making it uncomfortable to do it, and making it not worth the squeeze of being in those spaces and these sort of carve out spaces for just them and those spaces get larger and larger and then you know the spaces become the size of Madison Square Garden easily right and then because of the nature of how the industry works you have you, you have comedians on the margins being like well I could if I go in this direction that definitely seems like I can have a career and and what you have to do is have a profound denial of how your jokes might be received differently than you intend them right but also I think what what happens now is that before what comics were up against in terms of taking chances was just the mainstream. Yeah. And now what we're up against is a highly effective, you know, propaganda machine of a certain ideology that is informing comedy. Yeah. And they don't know it because they're fighting this fight. That's not even a real fight. Yeah. Uh, And, and so that, and I don't know that that's mainstream, but that is a force within culture that that because mainstream is not what it used to be, you, you know, because mainstream show business has become, you know, hobbled. Yeah. 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 And I also think it's, it is outside of their control in so much as that, you know, as, as I explained in the book, that algorithms are pushing people from them to things that are further away from them all the time and then and then reassociating them. Right. It's like those guys might make fun of Ben Shapiro or, or whatever or make fun of. Not Nick Fuentes. Yeah, but I, that's going to be the next reel you see when you flip because you looked yeah. at. And I, look, it happens. I researching the book, 
that happens. If you watch Joe Rogan, they will then associate you with this. And if you watch that, they will do. And the next thing you know, you're you're one of them. You're one of them. Like and it's, and I've seen it. Like I know what it feels like to be radical. Well, surprise! I'm a cat guy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like it happened to me. The example I use is that I had almost no interest in watches before the pandemic. Through a series of YouTube algorithms, it is now my main interest outside of comedy. This is a thing that had no. And so that could happen to right wing ideology. You're radicalized watch guy. Yeah. Now, thankfully, I'm not. If I had a lot more money, I'd be one of those guys talking about dealing and selling. But like. But I think they, 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 there's a, algorithms are very powerful things that are built building content around what n- not what you're interested in, but what will make you keep on watching, right? Yeah. And they know that by the this one element of all of those comedians is the has the most juice, and we're just going to keep on pushing further and further that juice and as, radicalizing you bit by bit without your knowledge that that's happening. And so you're being presented someone. That you don't even know they're radical. And then and but in terms of their sort of opinions about Jews or whatever. Yeah. But next thing you know, well, this guy's pretty funny too. And the and why it is even more of a problem is those people, the really radical, the people who are truly anti-Semitic racist, yeah. and then and, and that's their mission, they are doing this on purpose. They yeah. know that they can easily fool the algorithm to to trap especially young men. Yeah. And and as a result, I don't have an answer to that. There's ultimately there comes a situation where comedians are put in a situation where people can misinterpret their work or put them in a context they don't want to be in, and they either have the option of denial or pushing away some of their fans. Yeah. And, and that's and I don't know if I met a comedian who's really willing to be like to push away fans who are interpreting them incorrectly. Right. Well, except for Jeselnik. Yeah. Well, but. He Just, can't. He can't get him out of the room. But, yes, but he, he can knows. push back. But now pu- the pushback is part of it. Right. I, I, yeah, I think Jesselnik is the comedian who tries the, the hardest, but even he says it in a funny way. Yeah. So then they could be like, right. That's what he's being ironic about. Well, yeah, but it, right, but but you know this like, but to me this was the most sort of um, horrific observation along these lines in terms of what we're talking about which is from the book, it is through play and jokes that the perversion starts happening. Uh, as I've said, jokes and memes influence people's expect- expectations of and their interactions with other comedy. It is here that conservative adjacent comedy becomes a tool of the right. Andrew Anglin, the founder of the neo-Nazi website, The Daily Stormer, is upfront about the fact that he uses humor as a Trojan horse for his bigotry. Anglin understands that most people are uncomfortable with vitriolic, raging, non-ironic hatred. So his goal is for the unindoctrinated not to be able to tell if we are joking or not. And that's a quote from him. He continues, quote, there should be a conscious agenda to dehumanize the enemy to the point where people are ready to laugh at their deaths. So it isn't clear that we are doing this as that would be a turnoff to most normal people. We rely on El- Jan Lulz. That's And that's on purpose. This is yeah. an on purpose declaration <laughs> yeah. of, of what I've been talking about for a long time. Yeah. The radicalizing of of the people that are watching comedy. Yeah. But the comics are, are, are guilty in that they've been duped as well, either through ego or nihilism or dumbness. But- but you know, you talk about this stuff, and then you, because of the bubble world, you know, they're just like that guy doesn't get it. Yeah, yeah. He's a hack. He's yeah. a cuck. Whatever the fuck. Yeah, yeah. So, so this becomes really about 
you establishing the idea and, and what you talk about with the generations after me, you know, including, you know, Gerard and, and, and Drew, who, you know, who I accept. Great. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and I, can't, I can't wait to tell Drew that I... I, I don't I, know what his experience with me was in, in terms of... I think he, he, he didn't have the best time, maybe I'll... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think the... What it felt like to listen to, I think, was that that he can tell that you uh, were uh, dismissive of some of all the things that we talked about. I think he was yeah, aware of that as right. well. But I still don't think I was wrong. <laughs> yeah, but but I, you don't have to. You don't have to get involved. I mean, look, yeah, I, yeah. I, and part of it might have been, you know, again, my own sensitivity to what I've done in my career yeah. that for whatever reason, either insecurity or reality, I, I don't get appreciated for necessarily yes. or enough because I'm an old man. Yeah, I think there is the feeling, and I think you are more successful than, the, there's a lot of times where right now because of social media and stuff, there are comedians who are extremely famous for doing versions of other comedians who are not that famous. Right. So well, I can- It's always been the way. Yeah. Without social media. Yeah. But now, it's behind, now yeah. The, but now how famous they are and how yeah. less famous the other ones are. are well, it, there's always been, there's always a few guys behind every famous guy going like, I was doing that. <laughs> that was my bit even. Yeah, but. but I understand, but also, so you see Drew playing in your space and it's like, but you get a lot of credit. You should, you no, should be comfortable. Okay. Yeah. I, well, thank you. That's all I was looking for. But in, in You're terms in this of this book, a lot. I love it more than Drew. <laughs> oh, good. Well, that. Well, thank you. Uh, no, but I, you know, I'm a thinky guy, and, yeah. and, and I'm not. I'm not hitched to just comedy. Yeah. But, but, but from what we're talking about, these generations, two or three after me, is what you're trying to do, and what needs to be done. Uh, whether you know the other side reads this or not, but in, in the terms of like this is a attempt at uh, elevating the form, the art form of comedy, defining the art form of comedy in the shadow of a threat, mm-hmm. in, in order to validate the art and to um, encourage it. Yeah, because like one of the things I notice, and this is a problem with the mind in the world we live in is like, you know, who's going to read this? Who's going to see this? It's just another piece of content. You know, does it matter that we look at it as an art or not? But, you know, that your focus on, you know, how social media works, how younger comedians are dealing with it, what younger comics are doing live in relation to social media, and also queer comedy in general uh, as being cutting edge right now is something I'm not going to see anywhere or or even contextualize because I don't know the community anymore, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So, but but the intent is because the playing field isn't level, uh, you know, back in the day, you had the one or two oddballs, you had the couple of characters and you had the mainstream comics, but everybody was sort of around or at least representatives Mm -hmm. of them were around, but that doesn't exist anymore because we're in different worlds. So so in, in some very real sense, the world of comedy as an evolving art form that takes chances, that is interesting and challenging, is is under threat. Yeah. Yeah, and that that art form that does those things is the art form that I love and is the art form that, that I want to make sure more people love. They, they love the one that is open. And seek it out. And seek it out. And because I do think a, it demands – in my perspective, an audience there that wants that, who wants not one, it needs, we're expanding an audience's expectations, allows for comedians to have more boundaries to to explore or wider boundaries to explore different things and to be open. And and that openness is how you get the sort of connection that I write about at the end of the book, in, in my perspective, which is just, and that openness is not just to 
one definition of vulnerability, but being vulnerable, there's a vulnerability to just taking artistic chances. Sure. And to to allow for that is to understand that comedy is an art form, period. And as an art form, that means it can have artistic chance, like artistic taking artistic chances. And if you have all of that, then you're everyone in my hope and perspective will get more out of it. And th- and I in my in my personal experience, there's a, there's something profound that can be found there. Right. And and we live in a culture where, you know, the the, the key motivators are effective monetization mm-hmm. and and putting asses in seats. Yeah. Now, that's always been part of the show business. The idea of monetization, generating content and whatever that that that's a little different now, obviously much different. But but the truth of the matter is, is that there there is a language to to what we know as show business or. Uh, cynically content providing that uh, that that is competitive and that winning means mass appeal mm-hmm. yeah or or or, or uh, and that is contrary and always has been to true art yeah in a way and you but the, you have to fight for it or you'll just then or the the alternative is then it just doesn't exist right or like, it just gets a continued like, fight right? and, and and i think that the the last chapter or so you know outside of 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 reflecting on your own sort of uh, emotional connection to to comedy is that with the advent of certain technologies and and methods it is easier and encouraging to get that shit out there mm-hmm. it, there's a lot of garbage yeah but you you don't have to defeat yourself entirely. Mm-hmm. You can wait until you don't get the number of views that you <laughs> consider winning. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and it's also like a fight to get people together and doing it, right? Like, I do think it's a fight against the internet. And maybe this makes me, you know, when the, pers- the person who thinks I'm old thinks the book is wrong will be like, you just, you're dismissive of, like, the internet's ability to have people connect to each other comedically. Yeah, but right? that's a lie. <laughs> I mean, and I think that, right, the idea of live performance and, and the idea of community in in a live yeah. uh, venue uh, is important. I mean, I we you know, once we could stop doing Zoom, we did. Yeah, and I, I won't think do so. It. Yeah, and I think that the reason you, you mentioned talking about sketch and stand-up in particular and definitely stand-up is at its core, it's a live art form. And my favorite version of it, and the, the, the version that I... Def- I vouch for the most is when comedians are working on material, which it's is not, best, yeah. which is not how a lot of people are consuming. Well, in in the past, is not how people were consuming work. Now there's sort of this thing. Well, apparently, where, you know, uh, Gerard acted like that. Well, that's why. Look, that's why I loved it. That's why he, <laughs> this sort of unfinished thing is because there is, and I think there is a when comedians find it whatever it is in a joke and the audience is there for it and if they might know that they're there for it that is a special moment of connection. yeah and it might not ever happen again <laughs> i mean i know that with me yeah that you know there are moments that happen you know i leave room on all the specials for that to happen and it usually does but there are things that only happen once or yeah. twice and if someone's there to witness it then you did it it's not as satisfying as like damn why didn't i get that on tiktok yeah but 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 that is the the sort of dragon I'm chasing because I write on stage. So yeah. we have where it comes from and why and what that moment is. And it, for it to be witnessed is important. Yeah. And I also think like, you know, I've talked to people recently about people going back to movies again. And there's this idea that like, you know, uh, like, you know, people want to be together and, you know, COVID's over and everything. But also 
The world is fucking ending. <laughs> yeah. And that is what entertainment, you know, musicals were the biggest form of entertainment during the Depression. Yeah, yeah. So people are like, I got, I need something. And when you're sitting with other people, like, in, enjoying yeah, yeah. the community of distracting yourself from the horror, it's something. It's different than you sitting at home and experiencing that. Yes. And then, you know, the next click you make, you've been driven into a rabbit hole of garbage. And that experience is personal. And you don't, people don't, do not have the 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 management ability of their own minds. And yeah, it's it's the difference between passive and active and enjoyment. Sure, and, right? the, and even when you're sitting in a show, like I I you know I used to joke about it, but you know it's not like you're paying full attention all the time. Sometimes you're like, oh, what to, what am I doing tomorrow? And you you know, but but at least you're with other people. Yeah, yeah. You know, you, but you you can have your own experience in your mind even then. But but I think it was you know it's a it's a, an important undertaking to. To sort of, and I'm, I was the last guy to get on board in calling myself an artist. I'm wary of doing it now, but I, I do like that, you know, you, you sort of, because stand up always seemed to be a, a, a kind of, a, for me, a, a calling or a yeah. job. That, but, but yeah, but, but to, to sort of give it some structure and context and root it in history and in your own experience, you know, as a means to elevate it and uh, understand it, I, I think it was great. Oh great! Oh, I was like, it's like a very. There was an entire conversation was building to your one sentence review of the entire book. What it was the whole thing was a review of the book. I I, no, I, I don't have any problem with the book. I think it's you know the struggle for you must have been to find an effective theme, but after after a certain point, you know, to to sort of create a structure was enough, right? Yeah, yeah I think ultimately, I think there are certain artists who just have an instinct of what the thing is. And I think for a lot of people, they just have to do so much work and be so deep in it that themselves, they can't help but have themselves come through. I didn't set out to write the book and have certain themes about culture that you said or to be have there be death run through it. And I, and I, and I think a lot of people don't read the book and even really pick up on the fact that it's sort of death is sort of running through it or sort of the, the and in, in so much as that the book is about processing life and then and as a result that means death but it it, it couldn't help but be my book and it, and it sort of has my sense of humor and my neuroses and my uh pain in it and and it was a note that I got very late in the process which was sort of like I, I write this it's a fairly heady book the first 10 chapters yeah and um a person who read it says, by the end, the audience wants to know who you are. Who's the person that did this? Yeah. This is a thing. It's a weird thing to write this book this way and to be quoting these philosophers and to, to having such deep analysis on things that maybe had not gotten it. So th that's why, you know, at the end, I'm like, OK, you, I'll let you in a little bit. But this is why a person like this would write this book and and saying, like, ultimately, only I could write this book and you'll have your opinions, but or your view it's about how to see it. It is about how how allowing your brain to not think differently, but not not uh, not to have different thoughts, but to think differently about it. And I have I am proof positive of the fact that if you do that, you, there's a lot to get out of this. And I and I didn't know if comedians would feel the same way. I didn't know if comedians were like, don't tell us, don't tell people this. We want the audience to be like that. But I've, comedians have been very generous, and I think it's um, helped them come to terms with a lot of things that they did were doing instinctually or right right right, right. or or that they saw but didn't have the time to sort of um uh research or even the middle like i think um and this is the same thing i experienced with my podcast which is that 
it's nice to feel seen, right? You're doing this thing, and it, it and you don't know if anyone takes you seriously. So sure. I think there's something I hope hope beautiful in just taking people seriously, even the people that whose job it is to like not be serious. You know, uh, air quotes of like there are to be silly. It's like there's something serious about that. Well, I think people know that. You know, the sad clown thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's but yeah, I mean, that, and but that's not just it could there the seriousness could be not just in their sadness, but in their um, ambition or their vision, or and what, what they do with the silliness yeah. and how they execute it, and whether it's a a reflection on silliness. Yes, yes, <laughs> all of it. Yeah. Good job, buddy. Nice talking to you. Nice talking to you. There you go. That was good. Did we all learn? I feel like I learned. The comedy book is available now wherever you get books. Uh, I enjoyed that conversation. Smart guy. Hang out for a minute. Hey, folks, this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. You know all those times you've heard guests sneeze on the show. Well, actually, you don't hear any of that because we cut the sneezes out when we're editing. But take my word for it, people definitely sneeze in here, and when they do, I've got a box of Kleenex on the table right in front of them so they can use one and get right back to business. And here's what Kleenex means to me, a tissue that will hold up. We've all used those other tissues that you blow holes right through. When I see Kleenex, I know that tissue is up for the job. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. So every month, Full Marin listeners get a bonus episode with exclusive outtakes from recent WTF episodes. We've got the latest producer cut episode up now, including an additional 11 minutes from my talk with Doug Stanhope. My dad was a doctor, but he's got dementia, so he's no help. Oh, yeah. How's that working out? I always, as much as I'm with you on the no kids, when when someone my age still has parents that are alive, you're like, oh, fuck. It's It's like having kids. It's kind of, it's It's sad. You know, my aunt, my mother's sister just passed away. They're both in their 80s, but he's he's losing it. I mean, he's still relatively, you know, old memories. He knows who I am and all that stuff, but nothing's sticking that do, long. Do you feel like a, a responsibility to take care of him? Well, you know, his wife is still hanging in there. And my the way I see it is I basically said, look, I got, I got money. So when you need to you know, put him somewhere, just tell me whether it's a box or a place. Yeah. And we'll take care of it. Yeah. Can I buy my way out of this? Exactly. <laughs> I worked I worked really hard to be a, yeah. a man who can buy his way out of this. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, she's like, why doesn't he come stay with you for a couple of weeks? I'm like, that's not happening. In any, <laughs> there's no way that's happening. To subscribe to The Full Marin, go to the episode description in whatever podcast app you're using and click on the link. Or go to WTFpod.com and click on WTF+. Here's another thing I did not do in New York City this time. Buy an old guitar. Man, I got I to gotta stop myself from that shit. I was over at Howie's over at uh, Rivington over there on 4th Street playing some old Gretsch from the 50s. I'm not even a Gretsch guy, but, you know, I oh, it was close. And he had a Telecaster custom. It was close. Yeah, but I didn't. I didn't. I did not need it. 
And I realized that. But here's some old guitar from another time. Monkey and LaFonda, cat angels everywhere, yeah. (laughs) 